Welcome back. This is the All Things to All People podcast. I'm Michael Burns. This is episode two. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why did God create us? These are the sorts of questions that have plagued humanity since the beginning of time. And we don't seem any closer in, at least in the common realm of being able to answer those questions. But it is those very questions that we're going to answer today and begin to look at how they relate to the topic of cultural humility. Okay, as I said, this is episode two, all things to all people. And today, even though it's episode two, we will be in chapter one because uh, in episode one, we went through the introduction of the book. Uh, One of the things that I get asked a lot uh, recently is why did I write this book, all things to all people, or what is it? Uh, what's it about? How is it different than uh, my book, Crossing the Line, Culture, Race, and Kingdom? And, well, let, let me put it this way. When I wrote Crossing the Line in 2017, at the time, I thought that might be all that I had to say about the topic of culture and race. And I did not have plans uh, for a, a further uh, book on the topic. But... As my wife and I began to travel around uh, the world, really, uh, mostly North America and Africa, we did, um, gosh, I don't have the exact number, but it's easily over 80 workshops uh, that we've done uh, on culture and race, uh, these workshops that we call uh, Crossing the Line, based on the book. And uh, one of the questions I'd get a lot, or one of the, the feedbacks from people is, okay, we get it, we're with you, we understand the need for these uh, topics to understand them, we, we, we get what it's about, but now how do we go about uh, being a culturally inclusive church? How do we go about uh, embracing the, the mission that God gave us and not the one that maybe sometimes we want to be on? And so I really saw uh, an opportunity, and I prayed a lot about it and got some input and thought, yep, um, there is a need here to uh, uh, dive further into the how. Um, How do we go about being culturally humble? And so that's really what uh, motivated me to write this second book. And um, the let me just describe it a little bit for you here, the, the layout of it, so you know where we're going. The first section is called The King's Vision, and we're going to lay the foundation for cultural humility and cultural competence and how we go about these things. But, but in this first section, we're really going to get at why we're doing these things. And so the first chapter today is on our purpose. Uh, the second chapter is on the mission that God has given us. The third chapter is the task that he's given us within that mission. And then the fourth chapter is a covering of love, how we bring that all together. And 
Once that foundation's laid, we'll move into section two, which is on the dynamics of culture, and that will cover chapters five through 11. And then section three is on bridging the gaps. How do we uh, be culturally humble and come closer uh, together with one another? And uh, that is chapters 12 to 21. And then we will move into um, section four, called Moving Forward, and that's chapters 22 to 26. Today, though, we're going to get into uh, chapter one, The Purpose, Image Bearers. Shortly after moving into our new house, I had the task of hanging all the pictures and mirrors. This not being the most technically demanding of jobs, I finished quickly despite being possibly one of the least handy people alive. Now, I've long accepted that in the aftermath of some sort of apocalypse that sends humanity hurtling back toward the dark ages, I will be among the first to get voted off the island, having absolutely no useful skills in such a regressive world. Now, even though I thought I'd completed my task, a few days later, I discovered a picture that I'd failed to hang. I didn't want to go to all the trouble of trekking back into the garage for a hammer, so I decided to use a handy kitchen knife to bang the nail into the wall. Holding the knife backward by the handle with the blade aimed at me, yeah, let me break it. That sounds really like a brilliant idea right there. What could go wrong? Me holding uh, a knife backwards with the blade pointed at me. Back to the reading. I took the first few whacks with the butt of the knife. My plan was working as the nail began to bite into the wall, so I decided to hit it a little harder. But on the next swing, the knife slipped off the nail head rather than driving in more. As it slid, my hand continued to grip the knife solidly, which caused my hand to slide down the nail toward the wall. The nail now became the aggressor rather than the victim and tore into the flesh of my hand, ripping an inch-long gash. <clears throat> Excuse me, it wasn't that deep, but it hurt like crazy. I learned a valuable lesson that I should have learned a long ago. It's a bad idea to use a tool for something other than its designated purpose. In this instance, it was my hand that became the casualty. Quite often, though, it's the tool that succumbs to misuse. I've broken the tips off of two of my favorite kitchen knives while using them as crowbars. Now, I'm at a loss as to why I didn't learn my lesson after the first broken blade. But it's been long purported that the number one cause of broken tools or household items is misuse. Whether damage comes to the tool or the human using the tool, using something for an inappropriate purpose inevitably leads to trouble. When it comes to humanity, we often ponder what we are for. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Even those of us who recognize the existence of a creator are left to wonder why exactly God made us and what our purpose is. These are vital questions to ask and to work toward answering as we begin to study the dynamics of culture and the human experience. If we don't understand our purpose as human beings, 
we will certainly get off track in understanding and creating culture, and most definitely will get lost in our cross-cultural interactions and conflicts with others. A friend of mine recently sent me a link to an online article in which a religious author was making the case that Christians often don't read the Bible well and instead use it to suit their own desires. It's difficult to disagree with that. That wasn't the linchpin of the article, though. The author went on to make the case that the ultimate purpose for which humans were made is to do what is helpful to other human beings and not what is hurtful. He then used that assumption as the foundation from which he built the rest of his article. Does that sound right to you? Is it the highest virtue and purpose of human beings to do what is helpful and not hurtful? I would argue that this is quite dangerous, both because it's wrong and because it sounds so good. In Genesis 1, God comes before his divine counsel and for the first time during the creation of the universe makes a statement of intent about an element within his great creation project. Let us, he says in verse 26, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27 confirms that God does just that, crafting humans in his own image. The important question for us is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? At times it has been asserted that this passage transmits the idea that human beings resemble God in form and function. The most common explanation I heard growing up is that this doesn't so much mean that we look like God in physical appearance, but that we have intellectual and spiritual abilities that open possibilities that other species do not have. So in that sense, we are like God. Well, that may be true to a certain extent, biblical scholars have pretty well established that it is unlikely that this is what the ancient author or audience would have taken from the term image. Now, let me break in here for just a second and say that uh, the the misunderstanding or uh, miscomplete um, grasp of what was meant by uh, the original author uh, in the ancient Near East context when it uses the word image uh, continues to this day. And that's um, that's not to put anybody down or anything like that, but it just it just continues. I had a good friend of mine who's an amazing disciple uh, messaged me just this week and asked, uh, said, hey, I'm, I'm studying out Genesis 1. And, you know, I know the Bible typically describes God in terms of uh, male uh, characteristics, but in Genesis 1, it says God made male and female in his image. Um, so how can that be? How can God be both? You know, what about the female characteristics of God? And uh, well, I understand uh, his question based on the text, that's not quite, I think, what's uh, being represented here by the word image. So let's jump back in and examine what it does get at. In Numbers 33:52, God encourages the Israelites to destroy their carved images and their cast idols. The word translated image here is the Hebrew word selem. This is the same word used in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It had much more to do with an image or idol of a divine being rather than simply simply looking like someone. 
This makes perfect sense because much of the language and imagery of Genesis 1 seems to be alluding to the concept of a temple in the ancient Near Eastern context in which it's written. It appears that the author of Genesis very much intended to communicate that the creation itself was a temple of sorts. Temples were crafted as the dwelling place of the gods, and it would would only be complete when the image of the god was set into the temple. It seems that there was typically some sort of an opening of the mouth ceremony in which life was breathed into the god, and he began to rule in his temple through this image. That doesn't mean that our ancestors thought that these statues made of wood or precious metals were gods in themselves. Rather, they believed that the essence of the god inhabited the image. Once life had been breathed into it, the statue reflected the will, rule, and authority of the god in their territory, which for most deities was a limited area. The image was a tangible representative of the god mediating his or her rule with his or her temple and domain. With that in mind, the point of Genesis becomes clearer. There's none other like the creator God. His domain is not limited uh, to a corner of creation. It is the entire cosmos. The whole world is his temple. But he too had an image bearer. Unlike the pagan gods, it was not a lifeless statue. God made humans to be his image bearers. They would work together in community just like their creator who is in himself a perfectly united community. Let's break this down into the practical. Human beings were made for the specific purpose of operating as a unified community to mediate the will and rule of the creator into his creation. We would be the physical, tangible presence of the rule of God in his temple. We would run things the way he would, and he wanted this rule to be spread to the entire creation, every corner of it. We weren't intended to be in only one portion of the globe. No, humans were to reflect the purposes of God into every part of this amazing world. The intent of creation, then, is to be a picture of a world brought into submission and subdued by unified imagers working together to facilitate God's character and desires into his creation. What would that have looked like? Well, we can't say for certain, but surely it would have included bands of imagers living together in unity and spreading out around the globe, subduing and ruling over it the way God would have himself. Each of those human groups would have lived in harmony with one another as they worked toward the same goal as God's imagers. Humanity would have reflected the same unity and relationship as does the Trinity. This was the vocation of humans had they continued in submission to God and reflected his will into the world. But something goes very wrong in Genesis 3. We seem to be given an ironic picture of a rogue member of God's divine counsel coming to the first humans. He's described in terms of a serpent. 
His main objective becomes clear to the reader. He seeks to convince humans that they are made for more than being an imager. They do not have to be limited merely to doing God's will. They can know it for themselves. They can become divine beings capable of shining their own light and not just reflecting the creator's. Suddenly, part of the creation is taking dominion over the humans, the exact opposite of the way it was supposed to be, with humans having dominion over the created order. The humans quickly fall for this divine being line of thinking, and I can't judge them too harshly. I'm not convinced that I would have, wouldn't have fallen for the same line had I been in their place. Let me break in here real quick and, and say, you know, that's absolutely true. As as a younger man, as, as a child even, I would spend time thinking about me being in the garden, in a, in a sense, being in the place of Adam and how would I have responded. And it seems uh, really simple at, at first uh, blush to say, it's it's so obvious. God said, do this, don't do this. And how easy would it have been to just simply obey? And then and then my mind would race with, well, what were the implications? What would they have been had uh, I or whatever human was in that place would have obeyed? But then the more I think about it or the more I thought about it at the time, I I think as I grew older, I, I started to recognize within myself that uh, maybe it's not as easy as I would at first think, that I do know God's will even today in, in a sense. Um, you know, God has given me the tree of life, and then uh, around me constantly is that tree of good and evil, the the choices of right and wrong, good and bad. And and it really comes down to what's being depicted here in Genesis 1 is, a, a, am I going to use God's standard uh, of what is right and wrong and what is good for me and not good for me and what I should do and shouldn't do? Or am I going to substitute my own standard and uh, really do what I prefer and exercise my will over God's? And man, when I put it in those terms, I do that every day. I grab the fruit of that tree um, constantly, and I'm pretty confident that you do as well. So uh, substituting myself in the place of Adam is not as uh, glorious <laughs> with me as the hero as I uh, used to think uh, when I was younger. Let's jump back into the reading here. They exchanged the glory of image bearers for the illusion of being self-determining entities. They decide to do their own will rather than God's. And in that moment, they stopped being useful for the purpose for which they were made. They became broken. And this affects the entire creation. God did not make the world to operate entirely on its own, lest it become something like a runaway train. Again, we can't know all of what that means or what the alternative would have been, but it's enough, I think, for us to understand that the entire creation is negatively affected. The farmer's plow has broken and the field will not be plowed properly. Humans were not created with the primary purpose of doing good or being helpful. How would we even know what that is? We could easily think we're helping or doing good, but be doing just the opposite. No, that's not our purpose. 
We were made to reflect God's will as his image bearers, and failure to do that has huge ramifications. Genesis 5.3 shows us just how severe this is. Adam and Eve have a son, but we should not miss the dire repercussions of the fall seen in this verse. They had a son who would be God's image bearer? No, that's exactly not what the text says. Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. At best, the son could obey and do the will of his earthly father, but he was no longer God's imager as humans were intended to be. The life of humans was still to be considered sacred because they were made with the capacity to be God's image bearers, Genesis 9, 6, but they were no longer fulfilling that calling. What happens when humanity rejects our purpose as image bearers? The Bible uses startling imagery to get that point across. One of the primary tasks given to the human imagers was to govern the animals and care for them. But this is one of the most shocking points of Genesis 3. The beast now has the upper hand. The, this rogue member of the divine council has used the image of a lesser creature to tempt humans away from their vocation. The ruler has become the ruled. Hmm. Roles have been symbolically reversed, and the humans have now taken the role of the beast. Creatures that were made with no capacity higher than following instinct and acting in their own self-interest. This divine theme is picked up again in several key junctures in the biblical narrative. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, rejects his role as image bearer and embraces his own self-glorification. God responds by relegating him to the function of a beast. He will be what he was acting like. In Daniel 7, horrifying beasts are running amok until the messianic figure, one like a son of man, appears and defeats the beast, offering a new path to the holy people of the Most High, who can once again reflect his image and enter his kingdom. This theme of the battle between man and beast pops up briefly again in Mark 1, after Jesus has resisted the temptation from presumably that same rogue divine council member we saw in Genesis 3. Jesus did what humanity failed to do. He acted in the way a human should act. He did God's will rather than his own, and in response, Mark depicts him fulfilling the archetypal role of a human. Quote, he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him, Mark 1.13. But the beast is not entirely gone. The final battle will come in the book of Revelation when the picture of humanity in full rebellion against God is described as a beast. And as Daniel 7 predicted, the beast is taken down by the Son of Man. Humans were made to rule together, but they abdicated that responsibility as Psalm 8 so poetically describes. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've crowned them a little lower than the divine council and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Psalm 8, 4 through 8. Now, let me break in here and say that is a description, what we find in Psalms, of the ideal state of created human being. It says we are made just a little lower 
than the divine counsel. Now, if you read that in uh, your own English translation, you may look and say, wait a minute, mine, uh, mine doesn't say divine counsel. It might say angels or even God there. Um, and let me address that quickly. The, the Hebrew term there uh, used in Psalms uh, 8 is Elohim, which uh, in the ancient world refers to any divine being which would include God himself, angels, or the divine counsel. Uh, and you say, well, what's the divine counsel? If you're not familiar with that uh, concept, think of Job 1. We see uh, God kind of holding court, and his angels are there before him, these divine beings that he deliberates with somehow is the picture given to us. And even uh, the devil himself uh, seems to maybe have been a former member or still welcome in, and he comes in and he uh, challenges God, and they they go back and forth, and um, so the the Elohim though refers to this realm of divine beings uh, that includes God, includes angels, includes any other beings in the spiritual realm. So typical English translations favor God or angels here. But I actually think the larger context of the Old Testament indicates that uh, it's the divine counsel that's in mind here, the, the whole of these divine beings um, that are, uh, in, in this instance, w would not necessarily uh, reference God himself, but still uh, be part of that overall realm. So let's get back into the reading here and Finish up, uh, finish up the chapter and, and today's topic. Humans are still made with the capacity to bear God's image, but sin, the exaltation of our own will over that of God, has distorted that and caused us to go offline as reflecting images. We are fragmented. In fact, after Genesis 9-6, we will not encounter the phrase image of God again until the New Testament. Countless generations come and fade away with no one able to pick up the mantle of being a true imager. That is until the Messiah comes. That is why Mark depicts him as the one at peace with his role as a ruler over the wild animals. It is he who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Jesus came to do God's will, he says in John 6.38, and enable us to do it by entering into him Romans 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Ephesians 4, 24. Rebellion against being image bearers is seldom obvious, at least to us. We don't have to be serial killers or Satan worshipers with fresh goat's blood dripping from our knife points to be in rebellion against God. In fact, we can look like decent, upstanding, loving people, and in many respects, we are all those things. But subtle rebellion lurks just under the surface. Adam and Eve flipped their true purpose by allowing a member of the created order that they should have been ruling over to gain the upper hand. They were fooled by this member of the divine council into believing that they could exert their own will rather than reflecting God's. In so doing, rather than exercising God's rule over the beast, they became like the beast. So what does all this mean? God made humanity for the purpose of being his imagers, to reflect his will and his rule into his creation. 
We were to work together in unity as a collective image-bearing group that would spread around the world and introduce God's order and reign. We abdicated that position by seeking to exercise our own will rather than God's. But rather than raising our status higher, we lowered ourselves from our intended purpose. Instead of being a united class of rulers, we became violently divided into separate tribes and people groups. That's not truly human behavior. It is reflective of the beast. Just three chapters into the book of Origins that we know as Genesis, God's selected representatives have already rebelled and gone offline. In the subsequent chapters, humanity shatters and God's plans for his creation seem to be in shreds. How could God possibly resolve this terrible situation? And it is that question that we will pick up in the next episode where we dive into chapter two, the mission gathering of the nations. I hope to see you next time.